Hello, welcome to another episode of Sicker Than Most. I'm your host, Steve, and today I have a, uh, I got a good friend on the show, someone who has been influential in, in my early recovery and in my recovery um, still to this day. Um, he, he's the owner of um, the sober living that I went to, um, that I was at for, for about seven months when I first got sober. Um, great, greatest sober living I have ever been to. Thanks, man. The House of Pain, <laughs> aka the Pain House, and uh, and 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 yeah, you know he he was there right at the beginning, um, back when in Fresno, uh, middle 2018, there wasn't a lot of options for sober livings, and the options that were out there were um, subpar at best. Yeah, you know, and. Um, Flint did this amazing job. I think it was open. It opened in the beginning of 2018. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. yeah. So it was. So I was there kind of in in June. So I was relatively the house was relatively new. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, you know, I had buddies who were at. I won't name any of the houses named, but at other houses that were saying there was, there was drugs in the house, and there was you know the house managers you know getting high and 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 all that stuff, and just a lot of a lot of worse a lot of you know it was like a. It was like a battle zone for yeah. a lot of these, a lot of these sober livings, and I just, I never had to experience that. You know, I got, I, I got, I got in the house, the house of pain, just at the right time, and and, and loved it. And you know, Flint too. He also owns um, Pain, which is um, Parents and Addicts in Need, right? Um, here in Fresno, California, linking, um, you know, the recovery that you know treatment and and um, you know just recovery resources to the addicts. Who are who are suffering, right? right. Uh, he works with with families. He works with, um, I believe I believe some politicians too. Absolutely, trying to just yeah. beat the stigma. Yeah, I work with you know Jim Patterson. Okay. Uh, you know I work with Lisa Smithcamp, DEA, Homeland Security. Wow. You know, yeah, all a bunch of different organizations. Yeah. And so so he's to say the least, he is he is a huge part of the of the recovery community and um, a huge. Um, you say that uh, I guess warrior for the the battle of the stigma. Thank you. If you will. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. I'll, I'll give you the badge. I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, without further ado, I'll introduce I'll introduce our guest Flint. How you doing? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. This is this is something I want to do for a long time. Uh, you know, it's it's great it's great because we've been talking about this for probably close to a year now. Yeah, absolutely. Because right? I've been I was on. Um, I got a shout out. I got to shout out Flynn's podcast. Don't hide your scars. Right. Um, you can find them on Spotify. Um, iHeart. iHeart Radio. Yeah. Too. Mm-hmm. iHeart Radio. Um, and uh, they're all over. They got. They got amazing. Um, they have amazing, amazing guests on the show from from everywhere. Not just not just addicts and alcoholics, but like you know, um, what, what was your what was your guest a couple weeks ago? She was a, a news anchor. Oh yeah, I mean we we, we we have had more news anchors, you know, local news anchors, national ones, uh, Carol Roth from CNBC, uh, Leslie Marshall who has right. she's also affiliated with NBC and Fox News, um, Michael Johns who was a speechwriter for President Bush. Wow. Oh yeah, uh, Alexi Lawless who was you know a world famous, world renowned soccer player that uh, played on the U.S. Olympic team. Um, actually had this the, the former CEO of Kodak you know on, right. on the show yeah so right. so we've had a few good guests on that's, here you know dude, from time awesome. to time plus, you know plus the parents that have lost kids right right to right. this which is um, you know sad in itself but we've we've call it fortunate 
but we've had these parents that want to tell their story. Right. So they've come on. Yeah. Pretty powerful stuff. Oh yeah. And you know, it's, 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 it's episodes like that. And it's like getting people to talk about stuff like that openly on air is what's going to be, which is influential in the fight against the stigma. Absolutely. You know? Um, yeah. And so it's just, it's, it's, it's great to see. I've been a huge fan of the, the don't hide your scars podcast for, for a while now. And I, I, I too have been on the show. Yes, you, you have. Guys check yeah. it out. Yes, you have. You're one of the best guests <laughs> yeah. we had, brother. Oh, I appreciate that. That's a lot to say coming from you guys. Yeah. Got, you got NBC and everything out there. So, um, so Flint, so let's, let's, let's get into this a little bit about you. Sure. Yeah. So, so, Growing up, what did what did the home life look like? Moving into um, addiction and alcoholism and all that stuff. How did how did it how did it start? Where did it where did it take you? Man, this could take days and cost millions of lives right, to tell <laughs> this story. Um, man, I had a pretty normal childhood, you know, for the most part. Uh, mom and dad were always around. Had a sister. It was something out of, you know, the fifties. Leave it to Beaver. Uh, there there just wasn't wasn't much disaster going on it was it was a pretty easy life um but i was always one of those guys that i was the black sheep Mm -hmm. you know i was the one that would when your mom would say don't touch that it's hot i'm gonna go touch it to just to see and then get burned and you know move on (laughs) um but i also had uh to get my you know to kind of tell the real backstory of this uh i was born with with an ailment that caused me to have a surgery a year from the time I was born to the time I was 13. Wow. One a year. And then I had four more in 1976. But by that time, I was, what was it, 76? Uh, 21, something like that, 22. And uh, so my opioid receptors were already pretty screwed up. They, they, they were giving you painkillers oh, from, from, the, from the start. You bet. From the start. Right, okay. because... You know, because again, going in for the surgeries, they obviously have to knock you out. You know, um, yeah. but you know, then the then the medications coming home. Even though you know, again, I was a kid, and I don't remember much. You know, prior to seven or eight years old, mm-hmm. um, but it affected those opioid receptors of mine. So, um, but you know, moving forward from that, uh, again, I was just one of those guys that, uh, you know, I was I was in sports, I was in music, I was in student government. You know, all those different things. But, man, I'm smoking pot out on Princeton Avenue by McLean High School, you know, with with, with all the bad boys. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you had that double life going I on. I had the double life going on. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was it was fun, right? right. You know, uh, you know. then, of course, you know, cocaine came around. And, man, I you know, I thought I was Pablo Escobar, you know, for a while. Uh, and But my true true love, so to speak, was the opiate. Mm. And and I just loved the feeling, everything went away, you know. Right. Um, by the time I got to college, yeah, I was using those sporadically. I was doing a lot of drinking. I was in a fraternity house, and you know, again, just just taking everything to the nth degree. I didn't do anything on a small level. Right. It was either balls to the wall or none at all, you know. And um, and then when I hit about about twenty three. It was right before I got married. Uh, had a knee surgery, and game on. 
Game on. Was that was that like the the line you cross where it just it couldn't go you couldn't go back yep. to just the the sporadic every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. No, that was and that's a great way to put it. That's you know I call it the imaginary line, yeah. where we 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 reach a certain point, we cross that line. Now there's no going back. Yeah. There is no going back, and in those days it was extremely easy to get as much as I wanted. Anytime I wanted. Now, is that is that kind of going a little bit off topic? Is that before a lot of like the 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 DEA got involved with a lot of the the care network and all that stuff? So it was you could just doctor shop like no, there no tomorrow. Like nobody's business. Really. From from about twenty three, twenty four to forty five, you know that 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 twenty year span in there, I would have. 12, 13, 14 different doctor's offices that I would go to. Um, I would go over to the Central Coast and go in emergency rooms and walk-in clinics Um, because in those days, again, the the doctors were trained pretty much that less than 1% of the population is going to get hooked on these things. That was a huge marketing ploy by Purdue Pharma way back when. And so they would just write script after script after script. They didn't even check. They didn't check with pharmacies. They didn't check with other doctors. There was no check and balance system back then. Mm-hmm. So I could, and, th- and they'd write me, some would write me for 40. Some would write for, for, for 60 or 80 or 120. Every now and then I'd hit the mother load and some clown would, would write me a script for 320. And then, of course, he would forget to put the zero on the refill. So you hit him with so two. So I hit him with two or three <laughs> refills on that to boot. Okay, so so yeah, I was, you know, I, I was in hog heaven. But even then I knew that again, the game was on. The race was on. There was no way I could just stop. So I had I had to keep going, man. I just had to keep going. So that was that was a part of my it was a huge part of my life every day. It was just it wasn't even a question. Not even a question. Not even a question. And was there any point along that, that journey where you felt like this might be an issue? Or did, did the consequences start creeping up to you quickly? Or did they kind of happen over time? I would say it happened over time. Okay. You know, um, I was doing pretty well with my career. Um, you know, and I was also doing a lot of drinking in those days, too. So, you know, it's really strange, Steve. It, it, it's, I knew I was, I was hooked. I knew I was, was an addict. But I always thought that someday it might just go away. I know that sounds weird. Um, I didn't worry about the consequences that I would face in the years to come, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so so I, just, I just pushed on. I, that's about the only way I can say it. I just kind of pushed through it. Um, but I knew there was a certain amount I had to take every day. In order to not get sick. In order right. to not get sick. Gotcha. You know, gotcha. and that was probably 10 a day at that point. Were we talking Norco? In those days, Norco wasn't around yet. It was, it was Vicodin. Vicodin, okay. You had Vicodin and, and, and Percocet, uh-huh. you know, um, but th- those were the two main ones. Gotcha. Those were the two main ones. You had Tylenol number threes and Tylenol number fours and those okay. kinds of things, the coating. 
Uh, but that I wasn't a fan of that. Right. You know, the weak sauce. Yeah. The, the, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, you know, give me the big boy or go home. Right. You know. Right. So, um, yeah. Uh, and then it hit the point where all of a sudden, man, now I'm doing twenty a day. Hmm. Th- throughout the day, or just all at once? All, oh, throughout the day. Okay. Throughout the day. It eventually got to the point where I would wake up and take ten. Wow. Just to stop the shaking, just to stop the diarrhea, you know, just sweating the sweating, you oh, know, the man. yawning and the eyes watering, you know, all all the bullshit that goes on. Right. So that ten would start at whatever time I awoke, mm-hmm. and then of course during now I'm ready to go. Thirty minutes later, man, it's like let's do this. <laughs> yeah, locked I mean, in. You know, right, right, locked in. Here we here we go, goose. Okay, <laughs> we're you know, you know, my wingman, you know, my wingman was the drug, right? So, uh, yeah, then I'd start my day, and then I'd keep going, and I'd keep dropping more and dropping more, and all of a sudden by 4 or 5 o'clock, oops, I'm out. And what, what was the feelings behind that? Oh, God. Is there, is there, like a, is there even words to describe no, that feeling? No, no. Well, yeah, there's one word, panic. Mm. It's, it, it's, a, it's a straight panic, you know, um, I remember one time I was sitting at, I was coaching baseball, and I was sitting at uh, Bullard High School on the JV field. And the kids were, were, were practicing, and I was literally sitting on the grass, sweating. And this was in February. It was a Saturday. But in those days, you could call your doctor. And they would call you back. Mm. And I remember I went to Walgreens that was right at Palm and, and, and Bullard. And I'm sitting out there and I finally got through to my doctor and he called me back. He's, and, I, you know, again, I'm lying to him. I'm just lying out of my ass, all right? That I, and I can't remember what it was. My knee hurt or I, I tweaked a knee or my back or, you know, some dumb thing. Right. And he says, ah, no, no problem, Flint. He says, uh, he says, yeah, I'll call you in something right now. Wow. Do you know that when you do, when I used to do that, I knew those pills were right around the corner at Walgreens and three quarters of those withdrawal symptoms went away. Oh, just knowing. Just 100%. Knowing. Yeah. And right? I, it, isn't that the craziness of it all, right? Is that like it's, it really comes down to like the mental, like the physical, yeah, you're dependent, right? Yeah. But the, the, the mental, I'll never forget that, those feelings when you call up the dope man and he's around, he says, I'm around the corner and yeah. all of a sudden you just feel amazing. You feel amazing. Without even, and you're, but you're still withdrawing. You're still withdrawing. But it, your, your mind stopped, stopped messing with you. Yeah, because you know in just a few minutes, I'm just going to feel great. Yeah. I'm just going to feel great. Wow, yeah, it's true. a strange, man, opiates are a strange drug. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. They, they, they rock the whole body. It's not just, it's not just the mind, it's the, 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 your nervous system throughout. throughout. Yeah. So at, um, probably some of the younger listeners are, you know, um, who are, who are in recovery or know about, you know, pharmaceutical uh, opiates are probably in, I know I'm in awe. Wow, you can actually, that actually happens, you know? Yeah. You, back in the day, you could have just called in. Yeah, yeah no problem. I'll no get, problem. You, get you 30, 60, 90 Norco. No right, problem. Right. Wow. It was, yeah. It, it, <laughs> and like I said, you get, I, I got them from 12 different doctors. Yeah. 
and there was no care net or what is it the care whacking yeah, yeah no no there, there were no red flags there were nobody not, not one pharmacist ever said oh flint uh you know you just got some from another doctor you just it was just, they just okay. right wow but see but 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 here's what i also did that's why i say you know us and again steve the term drug addict to me is an extremely derogatory term. Mm. I just don't like it. I don't have another word for it, right. but I don't like the word. It, it has a condescending tone used in a certain way. It can be very condescending, very insulting, yes. Abs- absolutely. Especially to the general public. Yeah. You know, who just doesn't know, know any better. It's like that's a, it can be used as an insult a lot of times. Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. And that's, and of course, that's not who we are. Right. You know, but, you know, these, these doctors back then, um, it's, it's not that they, they, well, first of all, I, I want to say, how did they not know? You know, when they're, when, when they're writing me a script for, for 100 pills and I'm going in, you know, twice a month to that one doctor, I mean, how do they not know that I'm, gonna, I'm hooked on these things? Right. You know, but that's a whole other topic. Yeah. I mean, I oh, mean yeah. that that that's a whole other show in itself. Yeah. Just talking about the damn doctors, you know. Um, but for you know, but for the listeners out there, yeah, it, it, you know, it got to the point where, um, at the end of my using, I was taking about eighty a day, and that's then wow. that's no, that's no lie. I mean, that was that is legitimate, and of course, you know, if I did that today, I'd die. Right, Because a, a lot of people go, oh, man, there's no way you took 80. Really? No, you can build it. You can build can, it. You can build it really quickly. You bet. And really if there were more, I would have taken more. Right. I used to go in there was this one, I'm not going to say the drug on the air, but there's another drug out there that I guarantee that nobody, none of our listeners would even know about. It's a, it's a, it's a narcotic that is given to women in childbirth. And I would go into this one doctor's office... Uh, it, it was a she, and a um, little on the shady side, you right. know. I could go in there and give her 20 bucks, and she'd write me a script for anything. But she always had this drug sitting on her counter, and I knew where her syringes were. And I'd go in there before she'd even walk into the, into the room. I would, I'd have that syringe loaded up, and I'd stick it right through my pants into my hips. Mm. And it's a drug that will just knock you on your ass, literally, and five seconds and you would she even notice that it was gone no wow wouldn't even notice it was gone wow. you know and I guess my point to that is <laughs> we will go to any length to get that drug in our system right, right. it doesn't you know we always have our drug of choice but there's other drugs out there that fall in that same category there's more opioid brands of opioids than you can even imagine. Oh, yeah. And in and outside of the United States. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So many research chemicals, analogs, and it's and it's getting really bad, too, now with the yeah. whole epidemic and fentanyl and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, at, um, I, I think I kind of led you off track there for a minute. Yeah. When you said, the you were talking about the, the, the name, uh, or the, the, the word drug addict yeah. being derogatory. Where, where were you going with that? I think I kind of cut you off. Um, yeah. So you're like we're resourceful people. 
Yeah, we're yeah. Was it resourceful? Is that what we were talking about? I believe or, so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You, say you don't have a name for it, but it was it. You're gonna, you're gonna go off on something else. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. We were talking about. Um, yeah. All right. So. You know, get after you know after I would you know get the drugs that I needed. Um, you know, my day would continue. But again, like everybody else, I'm living that double life, right? Most people think there's something wrong with me, but then they really can't, you know, figure it out. But, you know, during that whole time period, I would miss family functions. I would miss my kids' base, Little League baseball games. Um, I, I would just be nowhere to be found because when you reach that point in your addiction, that comes first. You, you have to get that drug in you and you're gonna to go to any length to get it, and that's leaving your family off to the side, leaving your friends off to the side. Um, and of course, my family knew something was wrong, but they couldn't quite put their finger on it. Oh, so up until this point, they didn't quite even know it right. was the opiates? Right. Wow. I was that good. Wow. Okay, I was, that, I was that good at hiding it. But I'm gonna jump ahead just a little bit here because I think now comes a, a, a piece where I have to tell this one story so everybody gets an idea of where I was okay we of course we lived in a house in a prominent area of Fresno and I never knew what to do with the empty bottles so I would god forbid they should find them and find out I'm a drug addict right? <laughs> so I put them in a 33 gallon hefty garbage bag and I threw them up in the rafters in my garage knowing at some point someday I'll take them to the dump I'll, I'll bury them somewhere get rid of them somehow and as the years progressed because we lived in that house for 25 years as the years progressed I keep throwing them in, this, in these garbage bags and years later, when I went to my fourth and final treatment center, I'm in treatment, and prior to me going, my wife's family decided that my mother-in-law was going to move in with us. My wife is the only daughter. So my brother-in-law has decided to, while I'm in treatment, to tear down my garage and part of the patio and build a mother-in-law suite. Without you even knowing. You're Without me knowing. Oh, shit. The 10th day I'm in treatment, I, got a, I, could, I could make a phone call. And I called home. And the first words out of one of my family members' mouths were, and I hope I can say this on the air, we found your fucking pill bottles. Wow. They all came crashing down on the workers' heads. Oh, my God. There were four 33-gallon garbage bags stuffed with empty Vicodin bottles of all sizes. We figured there was about between six and 7,000 bottles, empty bottles sitting there. Wow. 
that didn't that didn't count the number of times I would throw the bottle because I never carried the bottles with me. I'd always put them just in my pocket or I'd put them in a in a in a in a, in a baggie, you know, because I never wanted anybody to see the bottle. So I'd throw that bottle out the window somewhere, but I'd always tear off the label first. So in case somebody found the bottle, they they, they wouldn't see my name on there. Right, right. Right? I cannot even imagine how many more that I got rid of that I didn't put in those bags. Wow. That just gives everybody an idea, a small idea of how many I was taking during those years. Yeah. A 35 gallon bag is huge, too. It's huge. Yeah. It's huge. Like, you know, we're talking the little regular yeah. size little orange bottles. Orange, orange bottles. Oh right. Gosh. You know, sometimes they'd put 50 in there or, you know, sometimes, again, 120, whatever it was. But still, bottles of, you know, little bottles, all of different sizes, though. Mm. And that just gives everybody an idea, you know, of how much I took. Wow. That should, that should scare anybody to death. So so at what point when you got that phone, was it that phone call where they, they, they when they said, they, I found your fucking pill bottle? Was it that that phone call when you started, like, changing, like, where, when you, when your mind started shifting, like... I got to do something different because obviously you said that was your fourth and final treatment center. Mm-hmm. So, talk to us a little bit about what happened in that treatment center. That what was it, and, and was it something that happened in that treatment center that changed, um, changed your mindset, changed changed your view on recovery, changed you as a person? What what changed in that fourth and final one? Okay. I need to I need to back up a little bit though yeah, prior yeah, to getting there, okay? Because people need to understand where I was physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Mm-hmm. Again, as as they say, I was I was just a train wreck. I had been to three other treatment centers and walked out of each one. How many days was usually? Two last? weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. That was tops. Yeah. I got this, you know, there's nothing else you need to explain to me. And of course I'd be using it another 10 days, right? Because like all good addicts, we know that we can, we, we can do this. We can beat this thing. You can't tell me anything I don't know. Right. Right. I got man. I got myself into this place. I can get myself out. I can get myself out of this. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Well, again, most people in recovery don't realize that that addiction is as much behavioral as it is a physical addiction. It's about our routine. It's about what time we wake up and take it. What do we do during the day? Do we snort it? Do we smoke it? Do we inject it? You know, do we have it with our morning coffee? Do we have it, you know, do we use more after dinner? Um, You know, it's it's behavioral. Where where the dealer that we go to... um, you know what? What's what's the the route and how we get to the dealer's house? You know, it's all those things that are behavioral. Gotcha. You know, a lot of people don't think about that in in recovery. You know, what do you have to change about yourself in recovery? Everything. Yes. Where you drive, where you go, what songs you listen to, you know, who you're hanging out with. I mean, all these things need to change, and of course, none of us know how to do that. Right. Because we've been in a behavioral pattern now for years. And you don't change behavior in a 30-day treatment program. No, it's, I've never seen it happen. I've never seen it happen. (laughs) I didn't do it either. (laughs) But, like I said, so I'm backing up a little bit. So, so I would say after, after that third treatment center is when all hell broke loose. You know, I was now, um, I was now forging prescriptions. I was stealing prescription pads out of doctor's offices. 
I was forging those. I had every doctor's signature down. I would, I would do that. I would, um, of course, add refills to it. Um, it's just less of a hassle. It's just less of a hassle. Yeah. It's, it exactly. just saves everyone time. Right, you know? right. Because, <laughs> right. Because, because there were days when I literally had to go to two or three different doctors. Right. Because this doctor maybe all of a sudden was getting wise and going, ah, I'm not going to prescribe anything to you. It's too soon. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. You know? Now i got to figure out another doctor to get into. But I used to make friends with the doctors. I used to make friends with the receptionist in the doctor's office. Mm. Seriously, I'd, I'd, I'd bring him cookies. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, look, a lot of this stuff, too, I, you know, I, I, I can't remember a lot of what I did, but, but some of this stuff I can. Uh-huh. And I was, man, I was smooth. Oh yeah. You well, know. and it's it's not we're not like as a as an addict trying to get our next fix. We'll, you said it. We'll do anything. We'll know? do anything. We'll we'll be the nicest person to to the most randomest people if it's if they're gonna help us get our you, know, you bet our fix. I mean, look, man, I was stealing prescriptions out of people's medicine cabinets before it was popular. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I mean. I mean, you're, come you're, on. You're ahead of the trend. You, I invented the trend. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it's, I've got, you know, friends and, and, and relatives. Um, sure, I'd, I'd, hey, man, i got to use your bathroom. You know, I'd rifle, th- would go to somebody's house for a Christmas party. I'd go into three of their bathrooms, three of their four bathrooms, you know, during the, during the evening and rifle through the medicine cabinet. I used to carry Excedrin in my pocket to switch out to switch out because a certain Excedrin white pill looks like a generic Vicodin pill interesting it's almost identical that poor bastard that went you know they were hurting and went to to take a a Vicodin or two for their pain and uh, they actually took Excedrin (laughs) (laughs) you know never knew what hit him no I have to ask get off off topic did anyone ever do that to you? No. No. I knew where every pill was. Mm. I never kept them in the medicine cabinet. No. Right? That's free game for any guests that come over. That's free game for any guests that come uh, over. Interesting. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay. So so when you said you said all hell broke loose, right? You're you're stealing prescription pads, you're stealing um you're you're forging prescriptions and you're getting to this place where it was no longer just calling doctor at a after a yeah. after a baseball game to get it. Now this is like, you know, unmanageable. And what what happened from that third to fourth treatment center? Okay, I'm gonna start with this. I remember uh, one of my sons was playing baseball in high school. And um, I had stayed up until about the fifth inning and I was out and I had to I had to go to a walk in you know, to get my supply for the for that night and the next day. And I remember sitting there, and there was nobody else in the waiting room. And now it's like 7.30 in the evening. And the door opens, and it's my wife and my son. He had torn an ankle sliding into, sliding into third base. They walked in, saw me standing there, or sitting there, and they literally looked at me, turned around, and walked out. Wow. And I just went, oh, God. I got to do something. 
It still continued for about another year, but that's when they knew. And um, and like I said, it it's. I, I couldn't stop. I had to keep going. I had to keep using. I was I was never physically abusive, but I was verbally abusive. So then I my wife threw me out. But I have to add I'm still married to the same woman. That's right. Which is pretty cool. That's right. I have a relationship with my sons again. Um, but I didn't for a long time. And um and then all of a sudden, people started asking my wife, is he sick? I had dropped so much weight that I was about 140 pounds and couldn't fit my 13-year-old's jeans. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so people started asking my wife, Does, is, is he okay? Um, I mean, look, he's, you know, he looks like he's got AIDS. You know, I thought it looked great, you know, heroin chic. Yeah. You know? And... Uh, <laughs> You know, but but again, I was I was um, I just looked horrible, hmm. and and it now and, and and again, I have to tell people this: when you're when you're spent, you know, insurance isn't paying for those drugs. Right, man. Now it's cash. All cash. All cash for the doctor's appointments, for the prescriptions. You bet. For all of it. So what happens in the end? Filed half a million dollars for bankruptcy. Couldn't do it anymore. So at that point, again, I had been thrown out of my house on a couple different occasions, um, promising that I'll never do this again. You know, uh-huh. all the stuff I hear today. Oh, yeah. You know. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. This no. is nothing new, man. Right. Okay. Every, you know, every addict story can be different but it's but it's basically the same it's all the same language right i've heard it for a hundred years now i got this i can do this i don't have a problem you know on and on and on as as you know your your, your weight drops and your and your and you look like hell and you can't speak properly and you're unkempt you know and all of those things that that just come along with those last stages of addiction and I remember that I went to a friend of mine's, my best friend in the world. I went to his office, and I walk into his office. I'm sitting there. He gets up from behind his desk. He's gone for about 10 minutes. He comes back, and he says, you're not going home. He said, I'm tired of you going to treatment center after treatment center. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you one last shot at this. He said, you're not going home, you're coming to my house, and I'm going to get you somewhere, but I'm going to do about a week's worth of research before I pay for anything. Because I had, I'd lost it all at that point. Mm. Simply lost it all. And I kind of, there was a kind of a silent, thank you. Because I can't do this anymore. And a year prior to that, I also had a heart attack and open heart surgery. Wow. Was that was that from the drugs? You bet. Drugs, smoking, diet, all of it goes hand in hand. Right? As opiate addicts, we don't eat for shit. Right. right? There's no calories in a, in a Vicodin. There's none, right? 
and we're eating sugar and we're drinking sodas and we're we're eating chocolate and ice cream and you know all all the, yeah. right They're, they they you know they they always want to talk about the weed munchies but they always forget about the opiate munchies right they're Those big things, they're, they're there yeah. they're there okay <laughs> i was i i kept briar's ice cream in business you know oh, yeah I, I i mean it was it was unbelievable um so at, at what point when you went to that fourth so you, so he finally found us a, a place and what did that what did that treatment center look like? Was it long term, short term, out of state, out of city? What 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 are we talking? Out, about? Uh, uh, down as far at the end of California as you could be. San Diego. Nope, not that quite. Down the desert. Oh, good. Okay, good. down down in Palm Springs. Okay. And um, I loved it there, but it was short term. Okay. Because in those days, again, that was two thousand one. Uh huh. Right. So. You know, nobody talked about long-term treatment in but those days. There, it just didn't exist. It didn't exist. Now they had they had you know outpatient afterwards, which now looking back, I should have stayed at least three months of, of outpatient and sober living down there. I I, I really should have. Um, I did my thirty days down there. Um, I thought it was fabulous. To be honest with you, it saved it saved my life. There, there is no question about it. That treatment center saved my life. But I was also out of options here in Fresno. I was out of options. Look, man, two things were going to happen. And I know it's the same old story, but I was either going to get sober or I was going to die. When I walked into the Betty Ford treatment center, when I walked into Betty Ford, there was about a third of my liver that was gone, but the liver rejuvenates itself. Right, it does. Right. I had I had nothing else left. Mm. Nothing. I listened to everything they had to say. Everything. I went to every meeting, didn't didn't bitch, didn't complain. I did the next indicated thing because I wanted my family back. I wanted my wife back. I wanted all of those things back. And I did it. Mm-hmm. And but always with the help of others. None of us can do this on our own. Absolutely none of us. Right. I mean, it, it, it's funny, too, because we always... The addicts and alcoholics who are, who are prior to getting sober, they always say, I can do this by myself. Yeah. I, I got this. I got this. I can do this. But if they could, then... Why? They would. Right. Right? Right. It's just... it. it I've yet to see it. I've yet to see it. You know? So... When you were in there and you and uh, Betty Ford and you were you were you were soaking up all the knowledge, going to all the meetings. How did your change in behavior look? Because you talked about that earlier. You said like the behavior has to change. Behavior so has so, to so change. how how did you grow from like day one to day thirty? Yeah, from day one to day thirty. Um, first of all, it takes about one to four. Opiates do three things to our brains really well. They wipe out our dopamine receptors. They wipe out the pleasure receptors in our brain. They wipe out our serotonin levels that keeps us in balance. And it cuts our maturity level in half. So my family wasn't, right? Does that make sense? I love how you were all like scientific, scientific, and then like facts. Right, (laughs) facts. Okay, we are... Maturity level. Right, we are spoiled little 12-year-olds in 25-year-old and 40-year-old bodies is what we are. 
you know, we want this, we want that. Why can't mom and dad, why can't you pay for my cell phone? Why can't you pay for my car? Why can't you give me money? Why can't you give me that $20, dad? Right. Right? What 30-year-old is going to their dad asking for 20 bucks? A heroin addict. A heroin addict. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay? If I asked my dad for, for 20 bucks at, when I was 30 years old, he, he would have laughed. Okay? <laughs> Just didn't happen. Right. Right? So people have to understand that that does not change overnight. It, t- it can take one to four years for all of those things to come back. That's why it's important to continue in AA meetings, continue having that sponsor or that accountability person, mm-hmm. whoever it is. And you have to have that accountability person that knows you. Right. That knows you. That is critical in recovery because it's not going to be your wife. It's not going to be your husband. Look, man, at 45 years of age, I had to learn to live all over again. I had to learn how to parent. I had to learn how to be responsible. I had to learn how to, quote, take my, take my medicine when something bad was happening to me without dropping a drug down my throat. All of those things that we don't do at all during our using days. And that's part of the, this recovery thing that, that I've been fighting for for so long is, is that longer time frame. Now, it doesn't have to be inpatient, but it's, it has to be a program that you have to go to at least once a week or twice a week you know, down, down the road. Right. And I did that. I mean, I'm here to tell you, I did that. That's the only thing that saved my ass. Because how easy is it for us to go right back into our old ways? And I'm not saying our using ways. I'm saying our behavior. Right. Well, the behavior can be just as, you know, almost or just as destructive as our, as our using. Absolutely you know, it can. If we're still running on the selfish, self-centered behavior, yeah. self-seeking, you know, um, motives and all that stuff, we're... That, 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 you know, we do in our addiction. Yeah, you take away the drugs. It may not be as hurtful. It might be as hurtful. But regardless, it's going to, you know, it's, it's going to negatively affect those, those loved ones around us. Of course it does. You know, you know I remember this is, this is maybe seven years ago, eight, year, eight years ago. One of, my, one of my kids came home. They, you know, they don't live with us anymore. But one of them came home. It was a Saturday morning. And... Um, you know, he's still my kid, but he, he comes in the in the comes over to the house and drops his clothes on the laundry room floor for his mom to do. <laughs> Idiot. Right? And I look at him. I go, man. I go, you know, pick your shit up, okay, and put it in the laundry basket so mom doesn't have to, you know, bend over and pick it up and to do your laundry, right? Mm-hmm. He looks at me and he goes, "Did you use something today?" Mm-hmm. This is only eight years ago. So what, what, that was like 12 years of your yeah, sobriety? Yeah. Wow. And I just, my shoulders dropped, and I go, man, really? Is that what you think? And he goes, no. He goes, I know you did. And he said, but man, your attitude sure acted like it. Ooh. Killer. Oh, that one's... Killer. That, that one made my stomach turn. Just yeah. Like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my point with that is that families, you know, they don't forget. Right. They don't forget. They can forgive. They can forgive, but 
they're not going to forget. That's too much. Too much trauma. Too much trauma. Too much trauma. Right. Right. And we, as as especially early in our recovery, I, I was the same way. We expect everybody to forgive and forget. Right. Right away. Ain't going to happen, folks. Because look at me. I'm I, I'm sober now. Right. You know. I think. It, yeah. I, it, it was kind of uh, it was kind of funny how um, you know for the first like. 30 days, 60 days, right? Like my, my, my family was, was really happy, right? They were really stoked. Mm -hmm. Probably even 90 days, they were really stoked, you know? Um, and then it got to a point where I was like, okay, well, what's, what's going on with school? What's, what's going on with, uh, you know, getting a car, that, that type of stuff. And I, I got insulted at first. I was like, oh, I didn't stick a needle in my arm today. Right. I was like, well, it's great, but like, you're not growing. Right. <laughs> you right. Know? right. You're not. You're not improving. Exactly. You know? and, and 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 I'm going to tell you a story too. That's even going to take this deeper. Mm. Hmm. This is a tough one. I had, I li like I said earlier, I lived in a pretty prominent neighborhood in Fresno, and I lost that house in sobriety. And so we had to move out of the only house my family ever knew. And we, even though my kids were gone, my wife and I leased a place at Champlain and Perrin. And April 3rd, 2007, she calls me at 12.30 in the afternoon and she said a friend of ours drove by our, our house and they think our house is on fire. And I went, well, shit, it either is or it isn't. You know, I said, I'll go check it out. Was, I, it, was this after you'd moved out? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not No, the new house that we were living in was on fire. Oh, on, Cham on Champlain? On, oh, Champlain, okay. apparently. Okay. okay. I drive over there. There's six fire trucks. My house is completely engulfed in flames. It's a two-story house. Um. The fire department found the can that the accelerant was in, and it was arson. Holy cow. Old drug deal gone bad? I don't know. Somebody I pissed off? I don't know. But that morning, my wife saw somebody in our backyard. She assumed it was the, the new pool guy, and it wasn't, because we called the pool company. We lost everything. When we left there that night, we had the clothes on our back and our two cars. That was it. And this was, how, how many years into sobriety was this? Six. Six, okay. Six. And, and there's a little caveat that goes with this story. So, we literally lost it all. Family pictures. Family heirlooms. Screw the furniture and the and the clothes and you know the non-essential stuff that doesn't matter but when we called my son one of my sons in in new york first thing out of his mouth was you guys okay we said yeah he said did my letterman's jacket burn i go what i go i go you didn't even wear it in high school you know and he goes he goes yeah i know he says but it had a little sentimental value to me I said, man, I'm sorry. I said, it, it's, it's gone. You know, he goes, oh, okay. 
God as my witness as I'm sitting here, a buddy of mine and I, we, 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 you go over to that house like every day just to rummage through to see if you can find anything to hold on to. A picture frame, a tennis shoe, uh, uh, you know, a plate. It doesn't matter, you know. Yeah. And we walk in the backyard. And there's his letterman's jacket, not burned, but it's black, full of soot. It was wet from the, you know, from the fire department. And it's hanging on a hanger on a tree branch. No shit. No shit. This is a who, true... Who pulled it out? Well, my, my friend and I are sitting there going, okay, this is just way too weird, uh-huh. right? We figured it was one of the... Because they had to take the whole house down to the, to the, to the ground. Uh-huh. We figured it was one of the construction guys. Because that jacket was under his bed on the second floor, and I know people can't see this, but but as the second floor came crashing down, it all it 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 saved the jacket. Everything was on top of the jacket, so the fire couldn't get to it. Oh, see what I'm saying? Almost like a sandwich. Yeah. Right. So we figured one of the construction guys go. You know what? They may want this. Huh. So they hung it up. So I tell people we never we ne- I never called my son and told him we found it. And everybody goes, what? 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 What's wrong with you? I said, here's why. I said because I took that jacket to the cleaners about thirty times, got the smell out, got the soot out of it, and that following Christmas I put it in a huge glass frame for him and gave it to him for Christmas. Wow. You know why? Because Steve, in sobriety, that's the things you do. Right. If I were using, I would have never even thought about doing that. No. It's no a, right? not, yeah, you, you know, and, and to be able to even have that opportunity, that clarity of mind to even think about doing that. Yeah. Is something a gift only sobriety can give you. Yeah. That's how good sobriety is. Right. It's not about how much money you can make. It's not, it's not about any of that. Okay? It's about what, believe it or not, people love our sorry asses. They do. Okay. <laughs> and and they want us to be well. And those are the things you do in sobriety. I would have never thought about doing that if I were using. Hell, I'd have probably sold the jacket. <laughs> right? Yeah. So guess what? The house thing? Yeah, it's gone. Okay. But here's the good here's the cool part of it. I'm back in my old neighborhood again. That's right. Right? Not not in the same house, but I'm back. Right? Good things happen in sobriety, but it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. Right. And everybody's always in a hurry. Can't be in a hurry in this. Right. I don't think it... All, all good things never happen overnight. Never. 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 No. It's, it's, it's one of those... I don't want to call it like a law of life, but one of those... One of those... Um, you could call it that. A law of life, right? Because yeah. I've never had anything good happen to me overnight. Never. You know? Never. By the way, it has to be worked at, too. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yep. You know. Um, I mean, look at you and I sitting here in this podcast room, okay? We're sitting here. We're two sober guys. You think our sobriety happened overnight? No. no. Do you think our surroundings happened overnight? No. No. It took work, commitment, patience. Something I'm not real fond of. No. Right? Me neither. Yeah. And I've never met a patient drug addict. Never. <laughs> never. 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 
Even in sobriety, we're not patient, but you have to learn to be, right. you know. We don't know, you know, Tony Hoffman and I talked about this. We as drug addicts, we don't know how to sit with ourselves. We don't know how to sit in a room, turn off the lights or leave them on, I don't care. All right. And just sit there for 45 minutes and do nothing. If you can do that, you can stay sober. But I want you to think about how many times were we on the run, man? It was we're, we're always on the run. Have to do this. Have to go here. Have to get there. Have to get this. Ha oh, have to talk to this guy. Have you know? Have to get that drug in my system. Everything's a foot race. Right. Sit with yourself. Yeah. For forty-five minutes. Here's the kicker. With no phone. No phone. No TV. No music. No nothing. No book. Not even a vape. Not even a vape. Right. <laughs> right. Not even a vape. Okay. Just sit there. See, Tony's point in that was he was imprisoned. He had no choice. He had to sit. There's a guy named Jeff Eben. I don't know if you know who Jeff is. Mm -hmm. Jeff is Jeff is one of the greatest guys in the world. He's a, he was a principal at Clovis East. He's a guy that's a quadriplegic. He's paralyzed from the neck down. And I took care of him years ago. You ought to listen to him on our podcast, man. That is a great podcast. He says, you got to learn to sit in your shit. Mm. We don't know how to do that. No. You know, there's another saying, too, that, or another thing, too, where it's like if you, if you, shit, if you sit in your shit, you'll appreciate it and never want to come back. Yeah. Exactly. You'll understand it and never want to come back. Right. Because right. if you never acknowledge it, you'll never know how bad it can be. Right. You know, if you're just running from it. Yeah. Run, run, run. Nothing ever. You're never, you know, you're never going to grow from it. Never going to grow. So I want to, uh, I want to talk about, I'm going to, I'm going to go off on a little tangent here um, and talk about, you know, as your, your work as, as, um, you know, with, with pain okay. right? and bringing, bringing uh, the resources to the addicts or connecting the addicts with the resources. Um you know, what would, um, I got you know, straightforward question. Does treatment work for a younger generation? 18, 25, 18 to 25-ish, right? Um, because, you know, I like I work in treatment, you work in treatment, you, you, you know probably better than me that we have this whole new surge of people under the age of 25 mm -hmm. who, are, who are at a point in their addiction where they have to go to treatment, otherwise they will die. Now, back in your day, you 18 to 25, you were just getting started. Right. You said by 23 was when the lights, the 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 the, the light came on, or you crossed that that uh, that invisible line. That invisible line. So, I guess too, right? Like we see, so we've lost so many kids under the age of like 20, just in just last year. Right to mm -hmm. fentanyl, to heroin, yeah. you know, to the other opiates out there, mainly, mainly, mainly fentanyl. Yeah. You know, um, right? Does treatment work for eighteen to twenty-five year olds? It can. That's that's the best answer I can give. It can. It can. And I'll tell you what comes into play for a lot of this is the families of those eighteen to twenty-five year olds. Most of the families think that their, their kid is going to go to treatment and everything's going to be fine afterwards. 
and that's not how it works. Look, man, I, I tell the truth about this. This is, this is no time to bullshit anybody, okay? An 18 to 25-year-olds, A, need to somehow grasp that they could die from their next hit of anything, whether it's weed, whether it's cocaine, meth, heroin, pills, Xanax, doesn't matter because everything is being laced with fentanyl today. Right. Let me tell you something, and I want your listeners to really listen to this. The DEA is here in Fresno County. They are in two places in the state of California, Fresno and Clovis and San Diego. They don't have any other task force in any other counties except these two counties. That's how serious this is. We are seeing that age group die from marijuana use because drug dealers are lacing pot with it. Wow. They're lacing heroin with it, cocaine with it, methamphetamine with it. You know what's funny too is a lot of my a lot of my, you know, friends when they, you know, in sobriety and stuff who have gotten sober prior to the whole fentanyl thing, you know, past three to five years, right? And they uh they kind of laugh, who, who would put fentanyl in cocaine, yeah. right? It doesn't make any sense. Cocaine's an upper, fentanyl's a downer. But I was, I, I, right? <laughs> well, but the Belushi's, right? The John right. Belushi's, right. yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but they say, uh, you know, I was, I was in, I was at my apartment when I moved into my apartment in Tower District about uh, probably two years ago. And they had, maybe two and a half years ago, and they had uh, the entire south of Van Ness blocked off with red tape. It was sometime in, I think it was in February or something. February of like 2019. And they had it, maybe March, and they had it all blocked out. And the there was like five overdoses of fentanyl. And what had happened was, is one of the guys in, that, in one of the houses got a bunch of cocaine, and it was a half ounce or something like that. And it was laced with fentanyl. And he sold it to like three or four of his other neighbors. So literally, there was like three separate fentanyl overdoses in on one block just house after house right paramedics in it right right and it wasn't it was cocaine with fentanyl i couldn't believe it i was like are you kidding me yeah no because see the drug dealer today doesn't care if you live or die or do you even think it's the 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 drug dealer the bottom dog or do you think it's the more higher ups that are putting fentanyl in it yeah that's that that, that's what it is no they don't care look it's not that they particularly want to lose you as a client but there are so many other clients behind you that they don't care they want to give you the better high the problem is look (laughs) they don't know how to lace it properly right they're not doctors they're not doctors they're not (laughs) well some could be chemists okay but they really don't know it's like a lot of kids, you know, have split that Xanax pill in half that's been laced with fentanyl and don't know it. So the one kid gets the, 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 the half of the pill that doesn't have much on it. The other one gets the full amount, and that one's dead in 30 minutes. Yeah. This is serious shit, okay? This, is, this, is, this isn't playtime anymore. There are kids dropping like flies out there. And so, but to get back to your original question, yes, it can work. But I think there's a couple of things that come into play here. One is they have to be detoxed properly. You know me, brother. I'm just going to say it like it is. 
seven and 10 day detoxes don't work. They don't work. You can't detox somebody in 10 days and then move them to a sober living facility. Right. They need to be in residential for at least 30 more days in order to have some sort of, of, of therapy and, and, and counseling in order to prepare them for the next step, which is outpatient mm-hmm. and sober living. I am a firm believer in that. I mean, everybody thinks that, okay, let's detox this kid in seven to 10 days and then let's put him in a sober living house and everything's going to be roses because he's surrounded by other people that are sober. No, that brain of his or hers is still not ready for that yet. It, and it, well, another thing too you see is it, it's, is it creates this, um, and Southern California has a great, um, or had a great reputation, I believe they're cracking down on it, but had a great reputation of the spin-dry cycle. Yeah. You know, seven to ten-day detox, go out, your tolerance is down, your veins are back, let's let's get back into it. Yeah, exactly. You know, go back to detox when I'm feeling sick. Right. Do it over and over and over again it's, until the insurance won't pay anymore. That's exactly what it is. And the DEA has shut down more Orange County treatment centers, and they're doing it more and more. Yeah. Okay? I mean, just watch the movie Body Brokers. Oh, yeah. I just wrote a piece on that. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I mean, so, but look, I'm not blaming the good treatment centers. A lot of this is insurance based. Oh yeah. Well, the insurance it, is only going to pay for so much. You can't get, you can't get 30 days of residential from even a good treatment center. Now. Well, you can get, you, you can, no, you can get seven to 10 days of, 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 of detox. All right, out of the insurance company, and you can get the balance of that for residential. Uh-huh. You really can. It's called a utilization review. Okay. You write utilization. Your staff writes utilization reviews, and you can keep that person in in, in residential longer. Okay. It just drops down the price. That's the reality. Okay. Okay. So is it is it a is it a problem of like people people aren't able to get those UR reviews done? In a you know a, in a proper way, or is it just that like they're not fighting for the client, or I think it's both. A little bit of both. Okay. I think it's I think it's a little bit of both. Okay. But that's what's important now. Because treatment is expensive, there's a lot of families out there that can't pay for it, right? Even even if the insurance stops, a lot of families can't afford to pay ten thousand, fifteen thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand dollars for the rest of treatment. The system is broken. The insurance company is broken. And they are still trying to figure out ways how to not pay as much. Mm-hmm. It's a constant battle with insurance companies. It's a, it's a constant battle with, with the medical community. It's, it's just a constant battle. But as a treatment facility, I believe, because I have one, I believe we have a moral responsibility to keep that person in our program as long as possible. And I'm talking about residential. Now, we're not going to force somebody to stay. We can't. Okay, It's, right. it's always a choice. But to do a seven-day detox and, 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 and re- remove them into a sober living and then regular outpatient, 
Does it work? Maybe it, it does work for some people. I'm sure it does. Right. I mean, it's worked in the past. Of course. But how many times has it failed? But how many times has it failed? It has failed more than it has become successful because addiction is not curable. Right. It's it is, treatable. But it's, it's treatable, not, but it's not curable. I'm not cured. You're not cured. I didn't use today. I didn't use yesterday. And I don't know what tomorrow brings. I doubt very seriously you and I are going to use something tomorrow. No. But I don't, right? But 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 I don't know. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if I'm being honest that's true. with myself, I don't know. But we have to somehow fix the system. Now, when again, when you've got a, a, a 23, 18 to 25-year-old, most parents think that those that age group can make these decisions on their own. What did I say earlier? Their maturity level is cut in half. Right. That doesn't get fixed in seven days. No. They can't make a rational decision. I'm not saying somebody is, is, is stupid. That's not what I'm saying because most of this age group are bright. They're, they're, they're smart kids. But with this... A decision like that requires... Maturity and life experience that just isn't there, that right? Isn't and, there. and I think too, not even life experience. It's like recovery experience. Yeah. You know, like look what you did. Look what you did. You went to treatment. You were there. Then, then, then you have worked a recovery program. How long? I mean, you're still working. This is a meeting. Right. Yeah. This sicker is, than most podcasts. Yeah, That's I get, recovery. I get more out of this podcast than probably the people on or the people listening. I know, do the same. You, know. you bet. It, it it helps. It helps. You bet. You know. So when so so you you brought up a lot of good points. So the first one was like you know the seven to ten days detox spin cycle is a broken system. Yeah broken system you're 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 almost setting the addict up for failure correct then the next thing you mentioned too is that you know especially for the younger demographic right like the experience and sobriety experience you know um or just the overall you know decision making skills when it comes to recovery are um you know cut in half mm -hmm. you know um what what are some other factors that you see getting in the way of an 18 to 25 year old getting sober in today's okay. in today's industry in going back to work industry. too soon okay going back to school too soon you know we I have, I have experienced this a lot over the years um, I look when somebody's in that age group and they're not married right they need to focus the first two years is critical in somebody's recovery now, I'm not saying you can't go out and get a part-time job somewhere or go out and, and go back to school part-time, but it needs to be at least six months after you enter treatment. This is just my personal opinion. It needs to be six months after you enter treatment, and then you need to do it slowly. You don't go back and take 18 units. Right. I don't even take 18 units right now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? But we have parents out there that think, okay, now my kid is fixed, your butt needs to be back in school, you know, you need to be doing this, you need to be doing that, because, you know, we're paying for it, and blah, 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 right? Well, that's that pressure that we all think we can handle, but we really can't. Mm -hmm. And what do we do? And if our brains are not retrained 
to handle that kind of pressure, we're going to reach for the first thing that makes all that shit go away. And drugs and alcohol do a incredible... Great job. Incredible job with getting rid of the immediate stress. Yes. Yes. I Just we can't stop. Right. We can't stop. We can't stop. And if you're early in recovery, the general rule is you always go back to the same amount you, you, were, you stopped with. Right. Right. Now your chance of overdose becomes greater because your body's been without for X amount of months. And you go back to that same amount, the chances of you overdosing, they, they rise drastically. Yeah. Especially, too, if it's not the first immediate time, right? Let's say maybe your drug of choice is Xanax, right? But you drink with some friends, right? Maybe the, you know, the first time using, it may be pretty mellow. But I've seen it so, so often where catch a little buzz and then you're like wow I can control this Yeah, I'm going to do more now yep. and that's what gets a lot of people too I yeah. see that and it's tragic it's tragic it kills people it is it kills people Yeah, because then, you, then you're living with that idea that I can manage it because I did a little bit the first time after being right. sober for a long time right. I, mean, I got this lick and that's the biggest lie you could possibly tell yourself because then it's like the next time or the time after that or maybe a week later is when they're back in the hospital right. or just dead, dead. Down, down the hall from their parents' bedroom. Right. You know? Because we know that's where they're dying today. Yeah. They're not dying um, over on, under under some park bench or, mm-hmm. or in a, you know, in an alley. That's not where addicts are dying. They're dying down the hall from their parents' bedroom. Right. Right. Scary stuff. It's horrible. It's scary, scary stuff. So, I, you know, again, I, I believe that treatment can work the first time. But this is the other battle I run into, especially with families, is holding that line on the alcohol issue. Look, I'm not an alcoholic. Never have been. But I don't drink. Because I know if I started drinking, first of all, well, maybe maybe I am. I don't know, but but, and I say that because I will always take it again to the nth degree. I'm not going to have one shot of Padron. I'm going to have ten, because that's my personality. And if I start drinking again, that is not my drug of choice. That is not quote my high. That alcohol at some point is going to turn me back to opiates. I'm a firm believer in that. It's happened time after time after time with people. Because it's good, not great. Right. You know? Right. And you know what the great high is. You know, yeah, you can't, you can't ever forget that. You can't ever, you don't ever forget that. No. Look, man, what, I've had 35 surgeries in the course of my life. Wow. Yeah. 35. 35. <laughs> You've been chopped up, I'm cut, cut open. I'm cut open from neck to you know what, Okay. <laughs> And, and I know that I'm going to have to have a couple of more before my time is through on this earth. Do you know when I go into the hospital now to have a procedure that when they pull out that alcohol prep pad and wipe my arm with it before starting the IV, that's one of the greatest feelings in the world to me? Is it, Just that smell of the alcohol? Does it remind you? It just reminds you of... In, in two minutes, I'm going to be just fine. Yeah. 
That's a blindsided trigger. That's what people don't understand about this disease. We can get triggered in by the dumbest things. Yeah. Well, I remember I remember COVID when COVID hit, it used to trigger triggered the absolute shit out of me because yeah. what would happen was when I was using, yeah, I would be sleeping in in bushes by the end of it and and sleeping in, you know, just nasty places, right? But the one thing I always did is I put hand sanitizer on my arm wherever I was about to shoot up. Yeah. Every single time I had trained myself hand sanitizer mm-hmm. to 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 sh- to what do you call it injection site if right. you will whether it was on my hand or in my little you know the the nook when you bend your arm where right. they normally do IVs or in my feet or neck always put hand sanitizer so when covid hit and everyone was uh, using hand sanitizer i can't tell you how many times a day wow. i wanted to get high wow it was it was bizarre Is, because i i never I, after i got sober in 2018 i never needed hand sanitizer right i never needed it never wanted it right wow then the moment I got into, uh, you know, when I was started, you know, working, I was working at, at rehab and COVID hit and we were all using hand sanitizer and my, oh, my brother, mouth would drool yeah. and I would, now I it's, understand. now it's all good. But yeah. I just yeah. thought that that, wow, I never thought of that no, until I, I had two years of sobriety under my belt and then boom. Right. Oh no. Another one for me is, is when I was a kid and had all those surgeries in those days, they used ether. It was literally a, a mask. Okay, that went over your face, and ether was... Yeah, was that's, that, that's that stuff from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Like, ether, brother. Right, right. <laughs> but guess what? Ether's in gasoline. Really? So, yeah, so every now and then, not often, okay, but if I pull in to get gas, and I'm pumping, and I don't care if I have $5 in it or $25 in it, if I get a whiff of that ether, I move my, I move my car. Really? Yeah, because it takes me all the way back. That's that's people don't understand the brain, especially people who aren't addicts. Yeah, they don't understand those triggers. They don't understand those. Even the 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 psychologists, they don't get it. They won't. They can't get it. They can't. There's nothing that because I think the other thing too is you know what's funny is I I talk to you know a lot of you know people get a lot of the clients when they're first getting sober is I'm like they're like man dude like um, life life isn't isn't that fun sober when they have like two weeks three right. weeks right and I'm like of course it's not because right. here's why right you got in the last 24 hours of your using you got more dopamine in your brain than you did probably for your next three months of your sober life right. maybe even more because mm-hmm. one shot of heroin one one line of fentanyl one hell one you know for all my potheads one big old honey backwood you know yep. of some good old cookies is going to give you more dopamine in that 10 second 10 minute you know session of doing whatever you're doing than you're ever going to get in a month or two yes. of sobriety yes it's just it's just reality right? right but what you will get in a month or two of sobriety is a little more control over your life and I bet you you're not going to disappoint your loved ones anywhere near the amount that you did in the last week or day of your using. Right. You know. Great point. Yeah. Great point, man. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't go to school for that. I just, someone taught me that. And yeah. so I just stole it. Now I use it all the time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what, that's what recovery is, right? Yeah. We're, we're yeah. taking bits and pieces from, from everybody, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we're, we're putting them all together to pass that on to the next person. Right. Right. 
Okay. I mean, the, the, you know, a lot of this stuff isn't my original idea. No, right? No, not mine either. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's been around forever. So yeah. so we we use a little bit of everybody's. Yeah. You know, but but again, that's the that's that's the reality. You know, um, treatment has to be longer, but we also have to make it affordable for people. Right. You know, just twenty grand oh. is just for. I mean, a lot of times, too, addiction comes from, not always, but it comes from, you know, the middle class. We're yeah. not dealing with the the um, Jimi Hendrixes, you know, and the guy who played Joker in Dark Knight. Can't right. remember his name. Keith uh, Ledger. Keith Ledger. You know, we're not, we're not dealing with those um, high-profile people, right? We're by dealing the way, with the by the way look, look how well some of these places worked out for Lindsay Lohan. Right? Yeah. <laughs> You shove what was she? I bet she probably shelled out close to a hundred grand at least. Oh, are you kidding me? How much? There's that she, she she, I know where she went. Uh huh. That was sixty thousand dollars for thirty days. Oh, she's been there five my or six times. Gosh, I know a treatment center back in Massachusetts that charges seventy five thousand a month. Wow, but they're actually good. Seventy five. They're unbelievably month. good, but still seventy five thousand dollars a month. Yeah. Really. Wow. Who can afford that? That could probably put two or three people through, yeah. you know, a good yeah. 30 days. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm right there with you. The system's broken. System's broken. System is broken. It is. But we have to be able to, no matter what treatment center it is, you know, don't forget the reason why we're here in the first place. Right. Don't forget why we really started these things in the first place. It was to help folks. Yes, you have to be profitable. Yes, you have to be able to pay your employees. Yes, you have to be able to pay the insurance. Yeah. It's a business, okay? But. But why don't we go work at Google or Yahoo or Facebook or wherever the else, right? It's because we don't give a shit about those. We don't, no. okay? We care about people. We care about people in treatment. We care about help helping people. But. Do it the right way. Yeah. Do it the right way. Yeah. Well, because then there's more harm than good that of comes out of it. You know? Of course. This and isn't a game. You know what's funny, too, is that when you... Because, when, yeah, you're, you're not a game. You're dealing with people's lives, you know? And so, you know, um, it's it's funny because when, um, you know, when I was in going through my whole cycles of multiple rehabs and everything like that and um, in and out of treatment and stuff, I could always tell... The counselors who didn't give shit. Yep. The counselors who, or the counselors who thought, who weren't addicts, but thought they knew everything there was to know. Right. Without them even telling me that they weren't addicts. Like, right. I could literally be like, I highly doubt that person's in recovery, and I know they're full of shit. Right. You know I mean? Right. I do. <laughs> I do. I mean, there were there were times, that, you know, because during all that time, I did see counselors. I, you know, I did. All, yeah. I had every one of those guys right where I wanted them. Yeah. Well, and then the the, the the opposite side too of that is that there's also then you can tell the ones who really do care. Yes, you can. You know. Yes, but yeah, it's easy to it, someone who doesn't know what they're doing and, and you know, as addict, like we're not stupid people. No. You know, we can manipulate, and like you said, we can have them right where we want. Them. Do you know that most addicts have three-digit IQs? Really? Yeah, really. Really. And I, that doesn't 100% surprise me, but a little bit. Because you see, too, that, that a lot of us, we burn, we burn a lot of brain cells, uh -huh. you know, right? Uh -huh. um, but the reason why, you know, 
and this is not scientifically proven, it's just my assumption, right? Is a lot of times, like, why we like using drugs and alcohol is because it shuts our fucking brain down. Most of us have it, that have that hamster in our head. It just won't stop. It will not it stop, stop, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I tell people, I, I used to be, I could read Moby Dick three times, War and Peace, you know, one of the largest novels out there. Today, I have to read a page of something, set it down, come back to it, read it a little bit more, set it down, come back, because my, my mind is, is, is always going 100 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you notice, sometimes I stutter. Right, because I'm thinking, you know, ahead. Right, there's other thoughts coming in and just messing the whole train of thought up. Messing the whole damn thing up. Exactly. I can relate to that, you know. So, this brings us to our the end of our show, but I want to give this opportunity, I want to give you this opportunity to share... Um, like a golden nugget, an oper- a, a, you know, a, a a piece of you know knowledge, inspiration, whatever, whatever. You, this is your this is your time to shine. Your golden nugget, right? What is something that you would want to say to someone new in sobriety, who is struggling, or someone who has sobriety, has you know, you know some sub- some substantial sobriety, and is struggling as well? Mm-hmm. What would be some, what would be a, a nugget of of advice or that you'd want to give to them? Mm. Well, look, nothing beats sobriety. I have more fun today than I ever had when I was using. You have to be patient. Life is good. The world, actually, the world we're living in, it's a little screwy right now. But guess what? For those of you that are out there that are struggling or new in sobriety, you're loved. You're loved by the people that are helping you. You're loved by your families. You're loved by strangers. Surround yourself in that love. We don't talk enough about loving one another. We really don't. We talk about all the crap that's going on out there. We talk all about the, the, the situations that out there that, that I'm not even going to get into. But we don't. I think we're afraid to have that, that, that discussion on love. But loving somebody, loving that addict, the addict loving people back, that is the key to it all. But love doesn't sometimes mean just everything is rainbows and butterflies. Sometimes love is a stern word. Sometimes love is, is it's serious. But for those of you out there that are struggling, don't give up. I gave up too many times. Most of us are not going to make it. There's not a reason in the world why, why I should still be alive at this point. But I really believe, Steve, guys like you and guys like me and some of the people you work for and the people that work for me, we've got a love thing going on for that person that is struggling. Hmm. Love conquers all. That's right. It really does, man. This is not rocket science. This is not rocket science. 
That's what this is about. The other thing is, and this is up to everybody individually, but at some point you have to come to a surrender. You have to come to that point of surrendering. That's the only way we're going to get better. And everybody's journey is different. Some people, some people surrender sooner than others. But let's hope you surrender before it's too late. You know, I think you ask anyone in recovery, they're always going to say at some point, I had to surrender. Always. Anyone with considerable amount of sobriety, they always surrender. Sometimes there's multiple surrenders. Yeah. You know. I don't want to take away from, from what we just said, but I always had this little saying, and I know it kind of may sound a little funny, but, but it was for me. I actually loved being completely screwed. Because I couldn't get any more screwed. <laughs> that's that no. That's real. Where was I gonna go? That's real. You can only go up from there. Only go up. Only go up. Now, yeah. this is the other thing though, too. People always say that we have to hit our bottom. To me, there's always ten more feet to dig. Yeah. That bottom is death. That's the only for sure bottom. That's the for sure bottom. Yeah. Right, and let's hope and pray that these people that are still out there, that they understand that. I, I heard this. Just put down the shovel. Put, put down the shovel, put down brother. The shovel. Stop digging. Stop digging, man. Yeah. That's it. It's already rocky enough. You bet. Yeah. yeah. So thank you, Flint. Brother, thank you, man. This was this was an incredible podcast. Thank you for being on the show. Um, you my know, pleasure. Yeah. And thank you for everything you've done in my sobriety too. And thank you, because yeah. you know what, you helped me in mine, my friend. Thank you. That's what we do. That's what we do. That's what we do. That's right. So I'm going to end the episode off, um, like I always do in a second, but just want to say thank you to everyone, um, you know, rocking the t-shirts, supporting the merch, um, listening to the show. Um, like I say, every episode, you guys make this episode and make this podcast something. You turn it from two alcoholics talking to each other in, in a room into microphones and you turn it into something bigger by just listening. And I want to thank you for that. And, um, you know, like we end every episode, no matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, you are lovable and you are forgivable. So keep that in mind. Keep your head up and keep it moving. Peace. Peace.